0: Thank you for downloading the Scottish Football Monitor podcast. If you like the TSFM podcast, please visit our website at www.tsfm.org.uk and participate in the discussion on our great love, Scottish football. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Hello. tell you a bit about the Scottish Football Monitor. TSFM began in 2012 at a time of crisis in their national sport. Fans felt that the rules had been deliberately disregarded by the authorities for the benefit of interest groups, namely those with money. They also felt that those interest groups had, through PR machines, taken control of and destroyed the independence of much of the Scottish media. Favours were granted for favourable coverage and a refusal to ask difficult questions. Through an online pool of legal and business expertise, coupled with writing talent, TSFM began to reach an ever wider audience with an alternative viewpoint to the money interests in the game. And in fact, as part of a wider online fan base, have been able to some extent to inform fans who have then begun to hold their clubs accountable. Our aim is to bring people together in a non-partisan way and to put the questions the media almost never ask into the public domain. TSFM is a friendly, comradely, interesting and fun way to talk about the game we love. Hello and welcome to TSFM. This is our second podcast published in February 2014. In this episode, TSFM's Big Pink chants to Scottish journalist, broadcaster and TV executive Stuart Cosgrove. Stuart is of course well known as the co-host of BBC Radio Scotland's Off The Ball programme. As director of creative diversity at Channel 4, he's been responsible for commissioning a wide range of programmes, including the memorable Father Ted. Recently, Stuart was in charge of the team which produced Channel 4's much acclaimed Paralympic coverage. A keen St Johnson fan, Stuart has long been a standard bearer for fair play in Scottish football and has taken a keen interest in the emerging influence of social media in the game.
1: Stuart, social media, do you think it's the, the new punk... Well, social media's had a massive, massive impact on all our lives and every form of our life. If you're connected to the internet uh, through the way in which you might just simply live your life uh, online, there's all sorts of... Um, uh, changes that it's brought about. I've always been a bit sceptical of there being a fundamental divide between traditional forms of media, the mainstream media as it's often called on the web and, and then social media. They, they clearly are different, they communicate in different ways um, but I still am a great believer that, that, that the media, uh, uh, newspaper journalism, magazine journalism, uh, radio and television journalism are often considerably more differentiated than than, than some people online Would give credit for. There's clearly uh, a popular press that's wholly reliant or largely reliant on advertising income and on readership, and their readership is in decline, and they're having to therefore convert that readership into an online communication. And in the process of doing that, I think there's probably been a way in which there's been an anxiety, almost a fear. You can almost fear um, some titles in Scotland. Uh, being scared of losing the traditions that they've associated over the years Um, it's often been referred to um, in blogs as being the kind of the old firm paradigm might be one way of describing it that you know there's an anxiety that if you don't have your traditional three pages on Celtic or three pages on Rangers the the punters will go elsewhere and, and doom will set in that being said there are other newspapers other magazines other journals that that actually are much more interested in the sense in their reputation and their attitude and their point of differentiation and all the rest of it. So I don't just see the mainstream media as being this sort of a club of clowns that uh, coexist to, to, to prevent us Understanding a greater truth. I don't think it's as simplistic as that.
0: But traditional media tends to be a kind of one-way thing, doesn't it? Yes. Whereas, and, and yeah. I know that with we, Channel Four, who you work yeah. for, that yeah.
1: they, they do blogs. Yes, indeed. There's a kind of polemic, and it provokes discussion. Correct. And I think that's the, the that is the fundamental difference: is that social media is much more porous. Um, I, I wrote a blog in the early days of um, TSFM where I, I jokingly referred to um, there having been an epistemological break in. Scotland. Scottish football. What I meant by that was that social media had come uh, had come into Sco- uh, Scottish football spectatorship with such power and such a point of difference that fans were able to talk to each other, uh, criticize each other, uh, descant on and criticize and comment on the media, pull together all sorts of different arguments and place them online, and and as a Process of that, I think actually a lot of orthodoxies were challenged. A lot of things that people took to be sacrosanct—that the National Football Association uh, was 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 there working away and doing all the kind of bureaucratic things on behalf of Scottish football—quite a lot of those values were challenged. Uh, that the clubs themselves were doing enough to uh, insist on uh, fairness and, and transparency and all of that, and I think um, the fans of challenged a hell of a lot of things we are now as a football generation as a group of spectators Uh, I think considerably more informed about how football is financed. I think actually Scotland's uh, ahead of other nations and uh, and certainly I think ahead of the English in terms of an understanding of the real um, risks attached to overstretching investment in football and I think we now know that, that clubs have to live broadly within their means and that there cannot be some idea that somehow out of the woods would appear this kind of sugar daddy figure that will bring largesse and will fund uh, football to that kind of level of international competitive status. Going back over the years in Scottish football there used to be these wee guys. I remember them at St. John'son when I was a kid. Grown up, and they were referred to as committee men, and they were people that had access to the SFA rule book. And the SFA rule book was this thing that they kept on the shelf, and they would flip through it. And they were the person that would register a player, and they had this amazing kind of local, kind of almost talismanic power within small clubs. Uh, now these things are published online. Now they're there to be challenged, or they're there to be looked at, or they're there to be analysed, and all the rest of it and to some extent power has been taken away from the committee men and it's much more i think a much more democratic place as uh, scottish football and the rules that govern it uh, is it in a perfect place certainly not has it improved definitely i don't know if the authorities have responded as well
0: as as they might have to to that inspection that we do have people like altid who has gone through a lot of the rules and regulations of the sfa yes. the, SP, yes. the spfls but Basically, what they do is they just turn a deaf ear.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's true, but they're turning a deaf ear uh, often in the knowledge that something's been rumbled or that the world can't continue the way it's done. And to some extent, there's another branch of social media. We often talk about social media, meaning Twitter and Facebook and that, if you like, retaliatory social media. But one of the strengths, for example, of the WordPress blog system and another one would be the kind of scribe.com uh, uh, as a website is that Scribe, for example, is one where you can put uh, lengthy documentation into a form, maintain it, host it online, and it becomes there for something that can be returned to. And one of, I think one of the successes that uh, of Oldhead's work is that what he's done is looked at an awful lot of documents that are actually, for most football fans quite arcane or not things that you look at in great detail and he spent a lot of time analyzing them and then placing them up on websites and making them available and pointing to their uh, responsibilities or idiosyncrasies and whatever and indeed challenged actually even um, Celtic themselves to respond to the, in, in their shareholder meetings about what they think should be a responsible way for the SFA to behave uh, that couldn't have happened it couldn't have probably happened 10 year ago let alone um, uh, 30 year ago because That level of education was not there. Yeah, I mean, you you were aware of it. I mean, I was very aware of it in in kind of working class communities in Scotland growing up. The the area I grew up in, there was a guy who who was called J.P. McGarigal was his name. And he was a working class intellectual. This guy would write to the local newspaper every week. And he always started his letters with the words, through the courtesy of your columns. And then he would slaughter some local politician or whatever. And I used to read this guy's letter in my local paper and marvel at his intelligence for clearly a man that was, you know, a working class, self-taught intellectual. Uh, There's another guy, Jim Fairley, who was a prominent figure in the SNP, but here was a guy that was a working-class intellectual who would go to difficult books and devour them. Now those things can be made available online. Now they can be shared. Now they're not just at the local library. They're online. And I think that's one of the big transformative things of social media, that no longer can the rules be hidden away. and even... TSFM's case, that there are people on, on
0: there who've got expertise in various different uh, yeah. professions yeah. And, and they can spell it out for lay people like yeah. myself, here's what's happening or at least give us an alternative viewpoint. Yeah, well
1: the, the, the big thing there, and again that's another uh, huge Part of the uniqueness of social media that traditional media doesn 't have is the so called wisdom of crowds you know and that idea of 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 crowd sourcing information and what 's happened and it happened with the RTC blog and then with tsfm and it also happens as well with Ranger Standard and with other websites the jambo 's kickback where documentation is placed online and poured over and people are actually yeah. looking at what does this really mean? How can this be interpreted? And, of course, that has a filter-down effect to fans that maybe don't like spending their time online or don't feel that they've got the uh, capabilities to analyze complex arguments of law or documentation. And one of the good things about it is that suddenly I suspect actually there might also be people that have maybe uh, you know um, recently retired from uh, professional jobs that they've held down in things like you know actuarial work in, in insolvency in uh, areas of company law and they're sharing their professional knowledge online with people that are just ordinary football fans. Yeah. And I think that that sharing of knowledge is a thing that social media can do that. Conventional media probably can. not Remember, one of the big weaknesses in in the traditional media uh, during the whole kind of debate about um, uh, issues around insolvency and in that was that people would say, "Oh well, we're sports writers. You'd need to go at the business desk about this," and created almost a kind of self-denying ordinance that said, "Oh, we we're allowed to be stupid because we just don't know." And I found that was a real betrayal, really, of some of the kind of values that you would hope from sports journalism is that if they didn't have the skills to analyse what was going on at a club in this case particularly um, Rangers Dunfermline and Hearts that you would at least seek out um, someone within your organisation that could guide you and I found that a bit of a betrayal actually. (laughs) <laughs> in some ways then, uh, thinking
0: back to medieval monks yes. who, who were the, the custodians of knowledge because they were yeah. the only people who could read or, or write. Right. and write yeah. and as people become more informed then the, yeah. the people who are in positions of
1: power they, they must be, yeah. well, at least a bit worried about it Yeah, well, do you know what? I think that you, we all know who media, medieval monks supported as well But <laughs> You are listening to
0: the TSFM Podcast Don't forget to visit us at www.tsfm.org.uk you can subscribe to this podcast from there or directly from the iTunes Store. Just search for PSFM.
1: Charlotte Fakes. Charlotte Fakes remains to me one of the great mysteries of this entire uh, story. When the Charlotte Fakes um, material first started to appear online, I think that I think it it, it threw down. A very different type of gauntlet to both social media and to the uh, mainstream outlets in the media because it was not clear at all who Charlotte Fakes was. Uh, the term uh, the name itself looked as if it had been teasingly chosen to confuse people. Um, I think a number of uh, branches of, of the media, uh, and indeed including TSFM, uh, were concerned as well that the this information could probably, almost certainly, have been received through misuses of the Computer Act and therefore was not something that could at the time be easily published. We forget that context is often all in all of these debates because it was in the back of the Levinson inquiry. There was high anxiety across the whole media about what was appropriate and what couldn't what couldn't couldn't be published. And if this was if this material had been sourced either through email hacking or through computer hacking or through phone hacking or whatever, uh, then clearly it was complicated for all branches of the media to reproduce. However, as it leaked out there and as variations on Charlotte fakes and different iterations of Charlotte fakes came into play, then curiously... Another range of uh, different social media platforms started to come into play for fans as well. Scribe being the obvious one where Charlotte uh, initially often published the accounts and this paperwork that had been leaked either from uh, Craig White's offices or from Ibrox itself. And then the other thing that came about was the um, clever use of SoundCloud, which usually is used by DJs to mix uh, cool soul records and things like that, but in this case was being used to mix. seemingly bizarre conversations between Craig White and Charles Green and uh, you are SEVCO and all of this sort of stuff coming up and uh, that was deeply fascinating because it gave you an insight into intrigue. Um, So I I really, really don't know and I'm not sure uh, I ever will know the real truth of it, but what I do know is that now that the law courts in London in the Collier-Bristol case have have deemed that Charlotte fakes his material which has been widely circulated on the web is now capable of being used within the court of law, it seems to have freed up some of the more conservative branches of the media to at least talk about Charlotte fakes. Um, I've talked about it a lot on radio, um, but only in kind of of general terms. So you've never really had a chance to kind of analyse the material and test its authenticity. So A really fascinating character. Lord only knows who he or she is. I suspect she's a he. I suspect that she's a he as well, uh,
0: and well known to to, to quite a lot of us. Because I I think the question that has always been asked is who benefits? And it seems to me that there is only one real beneficial uh, yes and also that, that, that a lot you think
1: he was born in Motherwell I think he may have been yeah Yeah. And you think he has <laughs>
0: wealth off the radar I, I, I think so he may have lost a billion or two yeah. in the past couple of months or, yeah. or yeah. years sorry but I think that's the that was part of the problem mm. with it it was like a, it was like a gift mm. to the people who who were looking to do Rangers Down yeah Um, and it seemed you know such a gimme that it had to be just accepted without question and I think that was mistaken and I thought that I thought Alec Thompson probably put it best I think he just didn't really believe it and he thought that it was that it was probably Probably. the chap that we're talking about and therefore thought I'm not going to be helping him but I don't think that, uh, that that Charlotte Fakes, whoever he or she is, was mm-hmm. going to get very much over Alec Thompson. Yeah.
1: Well, c- curiously enough, I mean, I was uh, approached about it at the time. And one of the things, this is one of the things actually that uh, a lot of people don't understand about the nature of um, uh, Channel 4 as a television station. Channel 4 is a publisher, broadcaster. It commissions programmes from external suppliers who are independent production companies. It's news services contracted uh, to ITN, which is based in Gray's, Gray's Inn Road in London. Uh, Channel 4's headquarters are in Horsefree Road in Victoria. So it used to be within the conspiratorial world of Rangers fans that I was a puppet master and Alec Thompson was writing blogs In actual fact, the two of us have never met. We've never actually been in the same room. And that's because he works for an entirely different company. Although the company I work for commissions his company to make content. Interestingly enough, and why that's relevant to Charlotte Fakes is not to kind of explain my relationship with Alec at all. It's to explain something else, which is Alec's work has to be legally reviewed by ITN's lawyers prior to it becoming Channel 4 published material and Channel 4's lawyers, if there is any doubt, will take a second opinion. And I think in the case of Charlotte Fakes, Alec's instinct was this doesn't smell totally right. It's not the biggest priority for me just now because he had... Uh, he had some like, other things, yeah. yeah he had yeah, Syria, Syria, he had Egypt, <laughs> he had a range of other things to worry about. Uh, and whilst we might be fascinated by mother-well-born billionaires, I think for Alec it's just they passing ship in the night and in the end I just think he didn't it was it didn't interest him enough it didn't stack up enough um and he wasn't quite sure of the provenance of it and he would d- doubtful if it e- even went to an ITN lawyer and if it did the ITN lawyer would have probably said oh due to the Levinson thing and that unless we can prove this wasn't sourced by the misuse of the computer act then let's not publish it and it never ever got to channel 4 I was never aware of it ever being a discussion and certainly if there was a discussion oh by the way we found some secret um, person to do with Scottish football somebody would have said Stuart who is this Charlotte Fakes they never did and it never happened Um, so I, I think Charlotte Fakes will remain a great mysterious character who we may all think we know who it is but I don't know who the reiterations of it were because then the was new scammers that turned up on the scene as well but nonetheless i think that charlotte fakes whoever he or she is has released documents that now appear as if they will be in the public domain and certainly in the the court case will be uh, taken as evidence and i think if they're if, if if they're stacked up as being authentic documents they leave further questions unanswered that take us back of course to our national football association and the way it's governed
0: You are listening to the TSFM Podcast. Don't forget to visit us at www.tsfm.org.uk. You can subscribe to this podcast from there or directly from the iTunes store. Just search for TSFM.
1: One of the things that I've been more and more struck by is that I've seen more intelligent analysis and this, this is not some kind of cheap attack on print journalism but I've seen an awful lot, an awful lot more intelligent commentary. I've seen a lot of rubbish as well but I've seen a lot of intelligent commentary on the web and I've seen forensic analysis of uh, quite complicated matters and I've seen all sorts of different interpretations uh, of uh, Scottish football online than I've seen uh, published in the media because I think the thing about it is journalists now in Scotland are under an awful lot of pressure, there isn't an awful lot of time to reflect on things, there's a tendency to just do the rota the way it is um, you get people that actually say, do you know what all of this stuff to do with Novation and Laxi Partners and who are Margarita Holdings, that's all too complicated so I'll just cut to the chase and talk about, talk about Lee McCulloch right, there's a tendency to do that in Scottish football simply because because of the kind of journalism uh, is under I think quite a lot of strain, economic strain, you know people losing their jobs, a desk cut back, nobody being able to go away to away games. The model of print journalism's deeply, deeply challenged and I think the web's free and as long as the person that's making the commentary has a bit of intelligence in their mind or a bit of knowledge and they've got a bit of time, they can sit and say things on the web. The one thing I would say and this will not go down well with the main bloggers on TSFM. I think that uh, Ranger Standard, which is the, the one of the Rangers blogs, where I don't always agree with what's published on Ranger Standard, uh, particularly not when they're having a go at me. But um, but nonetheless, every one of those Rangers bloggers, Chris Graham, John Gow, and there's other ones as well. They blog under their own names, and they stand up for what they believe. I don't always agree with what they believe, but they stand up for them. I think a lot of the bloggers on TSFM have anonymous handles, which leads to the idea that they're engaged in something that's less transparent. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure I totally agree with that. I know why they say it, and I know that they that some of them would say, well, you know, I, I, the web, you can choose to be anonymous. But it does make some Rangers fans look more transparent, even though you do not agree with what they're saying. I know that the reason for that is, mm-hmm. is to some extent uh,
0: trepidation. Yeah. Uh, consequences
1: the consequences of yeah. what of having an oh, opinion of oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. saying something uh, against Rangers because the, you know, there have been a lot of things said yeah. however uh, the, the late Paul, Paul McConville who as you know it was mm. uh, quite a prolific blogger mm. on, on legal matters and yeah. specifically I suppose about this whole uh, yeah. fallout for the Rangers thing much much better for, for his point of view that his name was out there because they get the flurry of distasteful remarks pretty early on and then he just dies then, away and then that was yeah. it yeah uh, to some extent that uh, a kind of keyboard with. Thing for yeah. people quite a
1: lot. Yeah. I think why it came about also in TSFM's own history is that because the blog, um, I guess it chupied out of the RTC blog, which because of the nature of it was anonymous, and as yet that story is yet to fully play its way out because there's still a, a tribunal yet to deliberate on it. Uh, but I actually think as part of the reconciliation that more of the bloggers and TSFM should, wherever possible, use their own names.
0: It's a challenge to certainly some people out there. Of course, some of them do use their own names. Yes.
1: You are listening to the TSFM Podcast.
0: Don't forget to visit us at www.tsfm.org.uk. You can subscribe to this podcast from there or directly from the iTunes store. Just search for TSFM. Because I
1: think... evolution of this is now a 15 to 20 year story uh, what had happened was that St Johnson the club that I support was uh, really on the precipice it was, fe- it was staring liquidation in the face and definitely was um, at the time trading insolvently it had a very very big burden round its uh, neck which was Merton Park which was uh, falling apart it was an old uh, ground and whatever the fan base was declining we'd lost one of our best ever teams and we were in free fall and what happened was that uh, the Brown family looked into buying the club now they already had a reputation within local boys club football and and, um, and Jeff Brown himself famously went out for a walk with his wife and said you know I think that I want to put some money into saving St Johnston and he came in and did this. What he managed to pull off was a property deal that guaranteed that Asda would fund a new stadium for us now McDermott Park and that we would sell Burton Park and then we got, we got phenomenally lucky which was that Mr McDermott himself, who was an ageing uh, farmer who had no children and wasn't married, bequeathed all of the land to the club in trust. And that meant that St Johnson's future was near guaranteed. Uh, but interestingly enough, we then found ourselves in uh, a series of divisions, uh, firstly with um, uh, Dundee, Livingston and then, most disgracefully of all for us, Gretna. And the Brown family often spoke to the SFA about these clubs, uh, criticised them Really, really uh, a lot in the press, uh, particularly critical of uh, Livingston, who had bought almost her entire first team and, and, and won a league. Gretna, who probably brought, bought three leagues now, um, uh, if you look at it through history. And these clubs were actually being they they were almost being kind of cheered in the media. Gretna particularly because it was seen as some kind of fairy tale or whatever. And I I am often seen criticised in the BBC as being resentful about it. And I really am resentful because what actually happened was that Dundee went administration twice, Livingston once, and Gretna, who uh, the owner of whom died in intestate, owning uh, hundreds of thousands of people, and he literally cheated people out of their money. Um, and I found that morally unacceptable. But because I was a Johnson fan, I felt it was my club that was seemed to always be getting cheated out yes. of something. Always my club that was getting cheated. And it built up in me a resentment about it, which to this day burns really passionately in me. Now, here's an exclusive. Here is an exclusive for you. Uh, and it's a funny one, this. Because uh, Brooks Mileson died intestate. Although Gretna Football Club are now no longer in as the entity they are and a new club's emerged and good luck to that new club... In reality, the group of people that were dealing with his will and who were the administrators of the defunct club uh, are still dealing with it because a lot of the things haven't been resolved about who owned his property, about whether he, you know, if some of the property went to his wife or to his son and whatever. And um, uh, a group of St Johnson fans recently spoke to the administrators who are a Sheffield based company and said to them. Is it the case now, would you accept that given the set of circumstances that happened uh, to Rangers and the and the uh, SEVCO 5088 arrangement and that innovated into SEVCO Scotland, uh, that it's now commonplace for clubs to buy people's history? Uh, and St Johnson fans will pose the question, if it is the case that the Scottish Football Association allow history to be bought... Is it possible that a group of St. Johnson fans can buy Gretna's history? Now, that would be an interesting uh, evolution. Now, St. Johnson fans would would be doing it for waspish reasons and furthermore they would be doing it I think also to point up the lunacy of where we are with those sorts of ideas that history is some kind of tradable commodity that you can buy and sell as you see fit yeah. I think it, it, it brought Scottish football into utter disgrace that Gretna were even in the SPL because they actually when they, when they won the first division in the last day against St Johnson they were already in my mind trading way beyond the capabilities of the single owner that owned the club and the Scottish Football Association had done nothing about it, despite the warnings of St. Johnson over numerous seasons in advance of that. Of
0: course, for the, for the rest of us, uh, irrelevant because it's all uh, about the old but, one. Well, yeah. uh, absolutely, yeah. because because if you're if you're in the SPL all the time yeah. and the SPL fans, did they, they really care what was no, happening? They the first just wait the and yeah. yeah, but it was also, I suppose, a harbinger of what was was going to come
1: anyway. Well, uh, that's the my point, and it's one 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 of the reasons why I've always. Kind of smiled, uh, sniggered to myself when people have said, "Aye, you're obsessed with Rangers." And you think this is an obsession I've had for twenty years of my life, and it mm-hmm. began long before Rangers. You know, at the time, Rangers thought that they were an unbeatable force because they had the money as Sir David Murray, um, uh, and clearly that was the beginning of of, of complete catastrophe for that club. Uh, and all you have to do is to turn round and say, for various reasons. Many things to do with the past. It suited the media to believe the Gretna myth... Uh, and to publish all sorts of rubbish about them. And in actual fact, the BBC did two documentaries, two valedictory documentaries about Gretna. Uh, One of the worst moments in the history of Scottish football and a disgrace that it was ever allowed to happen. I mean, to the day I die, I'd argue with anybody about it. And I think that what it was, was the last sad and pathetic moment of the belief that a sugar daddy can come in and buy success. That's gone now. It's gone you
0: know, forever. What I find amazing though is that, that at the time that Correct, they were doing what they were doing, at the yeah. time when David Murray was doing what he was yeah. doing at Rangers, that, that even rivals, well, perhaps you, mm-hmm. you're an exception, perhaps and Johnson fans were an exception, but, but to me, the rivals at all those clubs, they never really asked where the money was coming from. Yeah. I mean, I know that Celtic fans at the time when when Murray was in his pomp at Rangers were demanding Celtic spend money. Yeah. Despite the fact that it was probably, if anybody had, had done a back of a fag back calculation the money was unsustainable it it just wasn't there you know I I think
1: with with Brooks Mileson there had already been suggestions that some of the money was coming from uh, business activities in the northeast of England that didn't stack up Unfortunately, and unfortunately for St. Johnston and their fans, we didn't at that time have access, maybe, to the tools of 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 the web to be able to analyse all of that stuff in the yeah. detail that happened after the demise of Rangers. So, you know, that's something that we'll just have to to live with as a as a fan base. But I think that you you get to the stage now where it certainly marked me in terms of what I feel as a football fan, and I'm hugely, hugely emotional about the idea that success can be bought. I think it's the beginning of the end of, of, of football when people, in this kind of slightly, almost whorish way that people hope that somebody will come in with huge yes. sums of money, and you know we've seen the kind of damage it's done to our game. Let's not get down the route of saying oh well let's let's try and compete with the English Premiership I think it's one of the most corrupting leagues in the world and I want nothing to do with it and I think the idea that Andy would want to escape to that league they must be bonkers if they want that for their club because an awful lot of that is stacked to fail and it will fail there will be clubs that will fail well I mean there's a, there's a huge single point of failure yeah. involved
0: in it Sky Television yeah. yeah you are listening to the TSFM podcast Don't forget to visit us at www.tsfm.org.uk You can subscribe to this podcast from there or directly from the iTunes store. Just search for TSFM. Continuing with the St. Johnston theme, post the, yep. the Gretna situation and where St. Johnston are now. Yep. you wrote a blog for the TSFM last year about why the, the Beast of Armageddon failed to yes. turn up. Yeah, and has they really turned up
1: for St. Johnsons? No, certainly not. No, it's been Armageddon's been great for St. Johnsons. It's been great for quite a lot of clubs. Yeah. Um, this was predicated again on on a failure to understand some basic basic things about Scottish football. And it's to do often, I think, with the fact that we have a press for all sorts of reasons, many of them, many of them actually probably good reasons. They are blinded to the Celtic Rangers matches and to their history and to what they've done in the game. And clearly it's maybe arguably helped readership but since the readerships are in horrendous decline it's difficult to make an argument as to whether it's been long term good but you know you, traditionally what you're used to doing is to have your four pages of Celtic and your three pages of Rangers or vice versa and whatever and then people start measuring how much has been written about the other and complain and then go on the hotline if it's the record or whatever and then moan and moan and moan about it meanwhile all the other clubs are squeezed into one page and it's just uh, he's... Uh, groin strain's no cleaned up and it's kind of pretty poor. Anyway, one thing that I think actually uh, does play out in the Armageddon theory was that somebody wasn't really analysing what was going on there because um, I think that to give Stuart Regan, who I think was the person that first used the term Armageddon, to give him a bit of kind of slack, I think that what he was in fear of was that the television contracts might have been unsustainable and that's what led him to believe and when they met with the SPL board members they looked at what the prospects would be if there was a Significant diminution in TV revenues, and that was obviously uh, something that was scary for the for the clubs and their chairman. I don't think it was ever really so much about crowds or any of that, but that, but by virtue of using that intemperate word, he set up the idea that other clubs were wholly or principally reliant, rather principally reliant, on Rangers being in the league for their own survival. I knew that to be absolute nonsense. And the reason I knew that to be absolute nonsense is St. Johnson hadn't been in the same league as Rangers for 20 years of the, you know, of the Murray era. We were in for three years and relegated, two years relegated. And so for the majority of that period of time, we were not in the same league as Rangers and how could we possibly be wholly dependent on them? It was a nonsense. Um, and a nonsense that actually any simple analysis could have, could have, could have uh, turned down. Let me just give you an example St Johnson recently had a home game against Celtic in December of 2013. Uh, a week later, St Johnson had a home game against Dundee United at Perth. Uh, and the same St Johnson had uh, the final game that Rangers played in the period in the run up to their liquidation um, at uh, Perth as well. And across all three of those games, the biggest crowd was the dundee United game. Mm -hmm. Bigger than the Celtic game by 300 fans. Bigger than the Rangers game by 700 fans, I think, or whatever, 600 fans. In reality, across the last three games played by those clubs at McDermott Park, the biggest... uh, game was against Dundee United it's a local derby and it's it's also and this is something that neither Celtic nor Rangers fans like to hear there are a lot of football fans in Scotland don't like going to games featuring those two clubs
0: I have to be honest I've got work colleagues who who are fans of Motherwell Hamilton and they don't let their kids for instance go to either uh, when Rangers well Rangers don't Come uh, very often now, mm-hmm. but uh, but when Celtic come, they, they don't let their kids go. I suppose you can see the point of view. I, mm-hmm. I think to some extent, without uh, besmirching either Rangers or Celtic fans here. I think the, the numbers mm-hmm. tend
1: to intimidate people as well. Yeah, I think that's you the know. case. But um, uh, logic would tell you over the last three games that Dundee United had more fans. But that yeah, I'll I rest my case. Well, you well, know. well here here's another
0: yeah. thing though. That this is one of these glaring contradictions in yep. the in the Armageddon theory, and that is that. The money that they're worried about for the television, all of that prize money, it becomes mm. prize money, doesn't yes. it? Yes. It goes to uh, historically Celtic and Rangers.
1: Yeah. So the, the so-called wee diddy teams are not losing yeah, too so much. Yeah, so the redistribution yeah. of it was going to be advantageous to clubs like Motherwell or, or yeah. St. Johnson or Aberdeen or whatever. But the other thing that was flawed about it was that it started off with people... Uh, in i think significant positions of power i'm talking here about you know um the 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 presidents or the chief executives of our national leagues and associations actually in public in newspapers and on the radio and on television talking down the leagues that they're meant to be representing to broadcasters now i knew and this is partly is a lot to do with working at channel 4 in london i also knew that that bt were entering the football market and aggressively so because of their desire to win the battle for broadband in the in the entertainment space in people's front rooms and wanted to be a content company as well as just a kind of pipes company uh, and they were new entrants into the market I also knew at the same time that Al Jazeera, who have got an interest in securing more and more sports rights for the Middle East, were uh, a potentially interested party. So the idea that somehow uh, Sky TV... Had a gun to the the kitten's head and said, "Unless you get as rangers, we'll shoot the kitten." Was utter nonsense. Not only was it utter nonsense; it should never have been allowed to be perceived to be the case because it weakened Scottish football's negotiating power with other potential uh, broadcasters.
0: Do you think that that distribution of wealth, which has very much been in favour
1: of the, the 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 two Glasgow clubs over the year, is proved to be a weakness for them. You know? Yeah, and I think that there's been a time as well where, uh, you know, that you get fans of um, the smaller clubs who also like to uh, laugh at the delusions of grandeur that are often uh, magnetically attracted to Glasgow clubs. I mean, uh, how often do you laugh at the kind of, you know, the global brands that can barely sell tickets outside Scotland, you know, I mean, or the, you know, worldwide fan base that can barely raise Thirty quid when it's needed, you know. I think everybody kind of laughs at all of that, and like I, th- I think ju- that, that in terms of the Western
0: world, yeah, yeah, I think that Celtic could have had a claim. To some extent, to be a global brand, but I think that the West America, yeah. Canada, Australia, yeah. they, they're irrelevant yeah. the, the
1: real money is in the Far in East, the Far East yeah. yeah. And 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 even that brand, I'm wondering if that's connected to a whole set of other things. You know, the Boston Celtics notions of Irishness, notions St. Patrick's Night. There's a whole set of hinterland of stuff there that's part of that brand. I don't think it's necessarily just about a Glasgow football club. You know, well, uh, that well, that being said, yeah. I think that the the, the and they're always going to make more, an awful lot more money than St. Johnson make. Uh, and we clearly are not a global brand. But that's an interesting debate in itself that I think that the social media and the web has kicked off as well. And it's, a, I think it challenges Celtic more than any other club. Are Celtic a global club or a local club? Uh, I think it's unambiguous that Aberdeen, St. Johnson, Dundee, Dundee United are local clubs. Yeah. They are not making any claim to be global clubs and therefore it leaves celtic in a very difficult position about how does it answer that question and you can see the you can see the schizophrenia among Celtic fans when the question is asked because many of them will say oh we're a Scottish club first and foremost I don't want to go to England I don't want to break away I want us to get into the Champions League but I don't want us to leave and there's a confusion about what they are as a club you know all this thing about I don't want them to move to Dublin to play glamour friendlies they're a Scottish club and whatever and I think that that's something that only currently now uh, Celtic have I mean I think that for Rangers it's been many many years before Rangers are even close to being you know a club that's competitive with Celtic at the level that Celtic currently are at. Uh, So the question doesn't really need to be asked of them just now. They are very clearly a local club, local to the south side of Glasgow with potentially uh, interesting scale but not huge in the sense of global reach. That's a matter of fact. It's know. also the case, though, I think, that, that if you look
0: at cl- clubs who, who are true global brands, mm. they're moving away from their roots all the time. time and, yeah. and, and football was a, is a very social sport, sport isn't yeah. it? And it certainly yeah. has been historically. Yeah. And perhaps as, as a Celtic fan, I, I think sometimes I look at it through the Lisbon prism. Yeah. Because there we were, this crowd of upstarts for Glasgow, who yeah. most of whom had never even been abroad before, yeah. travelling to, to Lisbon to go and see their team play in the European Cup final, yeah. winning, feeling on top of the world, and feeling maybe that's where the schizophrenia that you're talking about
1: comes from, this yes. idea that we could beat the world, but at the same time, we were very much over our roots. That's you know? right, and and you know the thing is that though, though, that is very much now... Uh, deep history and and maybe now because of the spending power uh, of other clubs and obviously you know Man Man City, Man United, Barcelona, Bayern or whatever all the kind of the the big Champions League clubs, they have a spending power that Celtic can't come close to. And therefore you have a, a, another schizophrenia for Celtic, which is, do they continue to uh, grow and rear players that are from domestically from Scotland? Um, because one of the big boasts about uh, Lisbon is that they were all, all born local, yeah. local to uh, the west of Scotland. Uh, or do you shop in a marketplace where you're getting decreasingly good uh, players that maybe just can't cut it at the top level, and I think that's uh, a question that remains unanswered.
0: Recently, the, the, on the blog, there was uh, there was some chat about Aberdeen beating Celtic in the Scottish Cup. This idea in the in the, the media that, that was trotted to do was that you know Aberdeen have got no right to be coming here to to beat Celtic. It's Celtic yeah. they have mm. to be better than this. Yeah. And, and I think that that's, that that notion is
1: that there only are two clubs. Yes. Why anyone still wants to peddle that? Old line, I I don't know, because it's clearly clearly not selling papers in any huge number, and it's clearly not imaginative in the sense of looking at alternatives in life. But nonetheless, I mean, we we still see this idea that you've got your three pages on Rangers, your three pages on Celtic, and you can almost. Theo, um, branches of the news media are always creaming themselves at the thought that they might get each other in a cup and the world will somehow be back to what we all love and know again. Well, it's not happened.
0: No, it did look as if it might happen for, for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. You are listening to the TSFM Podcast. Don't forget to visit us at www.tsfm.org.uk. You can subscribe to this podcast from there, or directly from the iTunes store Just search for TSFM The one thing that Rangers fans and fans of all other clubs absolutely agree on Are that mm. the, the, the SFA have badly yeah. mismanaged Scottish football Yeah, Perhaps for different reasons In fact yeah. we, we know for different reasons but, but, but to what extent do you think they're culpable?
1: Well I, I think the answer is uh, significantly so but what I would like to do is to just go slightly back before I answer the, the question directly, and that's because I think they've also been an easy target. Uh, I think that there's a long history in Scottish football. In fact, it goes back to Ernie Walker and Jim Farry. Even before that, and I remember that uh, Jim Baxter was um, called to park gardens as it was then, the SFA headquarters in Glasgow, and he was, he was called to be disciplined for having put uh, stuffed a ball up his jersey and faked pregnancy having scored some great goal and he wanted to keep the ball and this was in breach of an SFA rules and regulation such and such and uh, he was taken uh, often, and, and, and given these kind of two match ban and had to hand the ball back and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, Willie Allen, I think the guy's name was right. Yeah. And, uh, he was seen as this kind of character that was like an old kind of risable bureaucrat and all the rest of it. And there has been a history of the popular press in Scotland, uh, tolerating the extremes and the outrageous behaviour of the players and in actual fact relishing it and loving it and willing it on and portraying the Scottish Football Association and its staff as incompetent, idiots, fools and whatever. So when I arrive at that, I kind of arrive at it with a, a heavy heart because I know that it's like shooting fish in a barrel a little bit, having to go at the SFA. But uh, just because it is like shooting fish in a barrel doesn't mean that you shouldn't shoot fish in a barrel. Um, and they have, I think, behaved... Uh, poorly over the last three or four years. In fact, uh, I think actually incompetently. And there's no question that there's um, culpability. And remember, this was at a time I talked about Rangers playing St. Johnson in their last ever league game uh, prior to the cup match they were playing against Brechin. And then the Nuko, uh reasserting itself and starting in the lower leagues. That last performance in the uh, in what was then the SPL was at McDermott Park. Uh, and to this day, actually, the, the media were salivating. I mean, I'm meaning salivating about Charles Green, who had effectively just arrived. Yeah. And clearly, people were willing on this kind of quick repair job to be done in order to uh, usher Rangers back into the top league. We know that didn't happen. But what we now know... And what I think is gradually uh, leaked out and been seized on uh, on the web is that uh, an agreement was struck. And that agreement, uh, to my knowledge, was struck, a uh, five-way agreement, uh, it was referred to as and has been, and it's been largely kept secret, although elements of our drafts of it have kind of leaked out and it was uh, at least, if not composed, certainly kind of agreed in a meeting and I think uh, the meeting might well have been at the One Devonshire Gardens in in the West End of Glasgow in a room, I think, to the right of the hotel as you go in. The reason I remember that is I was actually having a business meeting in there once when Bruce Springsteen walked in. So I know that Bruce Springsteen and Neil Gaon, Doncaster I and Stuart Reagan have all been in that room. Um, and of course, this arrangement was made and the five-way agreement was struck and it was the terms and conditions of how the Nuko Rangers might be accommodated in, in the game. And I think that actually it was done without sufficient transparency. It's not clear whether the right terms and conditions were placed on the agreement or who was actually in the room why the people were in the room and and what promises, if anything, they gave to the association and whether the association sufficiently kicked the tyres of those promises, because it now seems clear that at the very least there was uh, some communication, if not direct involvement, uh, between Craig White and Charles Green. Unfortunately, uh, I'm not sure that necessarily football will be able to just simply move on unless... There is some kind of sense that the truth around that is told. And it does seem to me that the associations would rather just simply move on, you're obsessed. Oh, we've got more things to worry about in the future. Well, actually, one thing we've got to worry about in the future is, is our national association in good hands? that's something for the future not the past well that's what I was going to ask you
0: because it's all very well to say and I think that I probably subscribe to this theory that there's no point in looking back and saying oh it was your fault and you have to you have to pay for this and this notion that punishments have to be dished out but I do think that there doesn't appear to have been any kind of regulation of the behaviour no. of the authorities. Yeah. If those regulations, uh, those structures, are only put in place to stop a repeat of what happened to Rangers,
1: then I don't see how people can have confidence in the people who are in the game. But yeah. the big problem, of course, is it's not a democracy. Well, it isn't. And of course, the other thing that starts to happen is it's a wee bit like Watergate in as much as once you have doubt, once doubt starts to set in, people then start to... Uh, interpret actions that are taken subsequent to that and start to then look at them with doubt as well and that's where the real 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 challenge is because in a way anything that's done and I think genuinely genuinely think uh, that people all of all, all football fans uh, and, and most certainly Rangers fans uh, want there to be clarity about what happens to clubs when they face insolvency events or what kind of punishment should be meted out to them and how that can be consistent and what, if any, fines they need to pay and who is then responsible. All of which have now all become discretionary powers of the, of the SPFL board. Correct, yeah. yeah. And if you look at those discretionary powers, the point at which one of them is evoked now, it's always now compared and contrasted to a catalogue of uh, misunderstandings in the past. Oh, the rule wasn't in place at the time. or oh, the rule is in place now, but now it actually only refers to the new league, not the old league and all of that. And there's just simply far too much doubt in people's mind that it's being administered fairly and that was at the core of what I think the meltdown was about uh, in that summer it was just simply is this fair or not another thing that old he was talking about was the,
0: this notion of trying to bring people together forgiveness thing, yeah you know. yeah
1: well I, I I I'm a great uh, fan of um, what's referred to as truth and reconciliation and all the rest of it and I think that uh, I'm almost in total agreement with Aldean about that I know one very very prominent Rangers fan that I work with he's ashamed of what happened at Rangers Um I know another guy who is a graphic artist that lives in Glasgow who has said to me he doesn't feel able to return to Ibrox until some sense that uh, all of this thing is brought to an end. We're talking here about hardcore teddy bears, we're not talking about guys that drift in and out of football, we're talking about lifelong Rangers fans that feel discontent and don't position themselves alongside the kind of um, uber-bear mentality that says we're right and you're wrong and you're having a go at our club and you're a Rangers hater and we've got a list and you know we know we'll get every one of you again. All of that stuff, I think we just simply need to move on from it. And there needs to be a recognition at Dundee, which I think that, Some fans, not all Dundee fans will acknowledge this, but a lot will, uh, that going into administration twice and having people like uh, Di Stefano on your board were hopeless moments in the history of the club. The Dundee team that were one of the greatest teams in Scottish football history. I think there are a lot of people now in Livingston feel that the implications of how their club were run and the trail that led back uh, and this connects them to Dunfermline back to the Bank of Scotland and the Bank of Scotland's um, lending processes at that time which have been exposed by other bloggers Ian Fraser being one of them Uh, and I think that that leads you then to David Murray that, that far too many scandals were allowed to happen within Scottish football that contaminated the game and I think there are a lot of fans that say we want a cleaner game, we want a better game and we want a better managed game and do I want a weekend Rangers? You bet I do. We've qualified for, for Europe for two years in the trot and had great nights. I was a, you know, I've been able to take some of my relatives out to games that they never ever thought they would see. And, you know, okay, we, we, we won away in Rosenberg, one of the greatest nights in the club's history. We got there because there was no Rangers. That's as simple as that, you know. And anybody that doesn't see that that's beneficial to St Johnson's living in cloud cuckoo land, you know. It, press to some extent have to take some blame for it as well. I know that the, the succulent lamb has yeah. got into folklore but but really? The, there's no question that, um, that uh, the press in Scotland particularly, the, I, I would say actually most branches of the printed press didn't cl- cover themselves in glory, I don't think um, and I've said that and it doesn't necessarily make me popular with print journalists but it is just the way it is and one of the reasons for that is that You hear the thing about, oh, well, you know, we didn't know because we're not business journalists. Another favourite one is we don't have the space or the time or whatever. Um, I think that if you don't support Celtic or Rangers, you see the press really differently. I think that, that Celtic and Rangers fans spend all of their time trying to, uh, this bizarre kind of coded game they play where they try to guess who he really supports, right? <laughs> that kind of taxi driver question, right? Team. Who's your big team, right? <clears throat> so they're always there and it's kind of hey, Davey Provo or it's uh, Nuremberg Hugh or what. They've got all these names for these people because of the crimes of the past, but they're clearly about i who do they really support if you look at it from the point of view of a st johnson fan or kilmarnock fan a st Mirren fan a dundee united fan one of the things that you see is that the glasgow-based press and they are principally glasgow-based go along to these pressers as they call them where they just reproduce stuff that is literally promotional. It's not it's not journalism in any real sense. You come in and we'll let you speak to Anthony Stokes on condition that you don't actually do anything other yeah. than put the photograph up of him with an 0800 number on a big board. And you just think, is that it? Is that what we've got to? That's a plug. A puff but piece.
0: I know it's difficult because I know that the footballers are so, and managers yeah. as well, are so well PR managed yeah. that uh, they very seldom get the chance to say anything interesting. Mm. And I think that's a problem for journalists for, for years and years. But but sc- nobody says anything But
1: Scotland is as passionate. We're not as big a country, obviously, as, as Italy, but we're as passionate consumers of football as they are in Italy. And if you pick up the daily Italian football papers, right, these papers are analytical both of the tactics, the strategies of managers, and deeply, deeply analytical of all the fraudulent behaviour that has gone on in Italian football, which is deeply corrupt. And it seems that they have an audience or a readership capable of reading complexity in ways that somehow our press feel we have not got. And I know that not to be true. I've got really, really good mates of mine that travel to games with me who absolutely love the analysis of football that barely would buy a Scottish paper. The Italian, uh, is it
0: Gazeta dello Sport? Sport? yeah. I remember one time in a Champions League match in, in Milan. After the game, I was in a hotel with several members of the press and somebody had this big double broadsheet mm. type of newspaper and they went through every single game that had been played that evening and they had predicted starting lineups every single one of them were right right yeah you know so that the guys who were writing for these newspapers actually knew, <laughs> you knew what they were, were talking, talking about as yes. well you yeah. know yeah. And, I, and I remember thinking that there's a kind of absence of irony here because mm. these guys are saying well, this, this paper's brilliant isn't it yeah is it <laughs> you, yeah. what does
1: that tell you <laughs> yeah yeah
0: Scottish football has felt Mm. a wee bit doom and gloom over the past couple of years. But do you think that we'll emerge
1: eventually from all of this stronger? Or do you you still despair? Do you know what? I wonder about the doom and gloom. I think there's been a lot of it. I've been very... Uh, forthright about my uh, in public and on the and on the radio about the loathing I have for the low level corruption that has been allowed to exist in Scottish football, as as clubs have kind of cheated their way uh, to achievements that they maybe their their income didn't merit. My focus of my accusations have been particularly against Dundee and Gretna, but I wouldn't uh, rule out um, Livingston Hearts, Dunfermline and Rangers either. So there's been a corrosive vein right through Scottish football, which I now think is definitely uh, changing and that's for the better. But during that journey, there's all sorts of things that have happened that have been deeply funny as well I mean so it's not all been doom and gloom because out of it a black humor has emerged I mean who would have believed for example that um that Dundee would have uh, a fraudulent lawyer supporting war criminals on their board I mean wonderful it couldn't have happened to a nicer team who who would have believed that Fabrizio Ravinelli would come off the bench at Clyde. Who would have believed, and it gets better, that, um, you know, that uh, a clown from Corby would get implicated in the Rangers scandal? Who would have believed that a mother well born billionaire with wealth off the radar would come into town? I mean, you could, it's a script that you could keep going. And loads and loads of people on TSFM. Uh, are clearly enjoying the panto of it all as much as they're enjoying critic criticising the corruption of it. So I think it's not been all doom and gloom. There's been this other drama that's been played out alongside it that's been very funny at times.
0: Stuart Cosgrove, Thank very you much. very much
1: indeed. Cheers.
0: <laughs> you are listening to the TSFM Podcast. Don't forget to visit us at www.tsfm.org.uk. You can subscribe to this podcast from there... Or directly from the iTunes store. Just search for TSFN.